Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. It's been a big week in the global trade war with more tariffs, but also an outbreak of niceness at the G7 summit. What's going on there? Meanwhile, closer to home, new laws for mandatory reporting are making a big show of challenging the seal of the confessional. But do they really do that? We'll look into that and also deep dive into what's happening in the very big business of mass entertainment as global behemoth Disney Corporation rolls out its plans for 7 million Star Wars movies and 4,000 Netflix series involving Marvel Comic Universe characters while still grappling with IP and licensing issues. Then in our Books and Culture segment, we'll get underneath the Tarantino flick, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, go once more around Stranger Things and analyse the second season of the serial killer series, Mindhunter. Oh, and of course, we'll wonder how it is that erstwhile king of goth Nick Cave now plays with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. It's a long way from injecting heroin and release the bats. (laughs) I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today by my co-host, who can't stop chuckling, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Burke. You're just a very funny podcast host. That's all. <laughs> no, Nick Cave's inherently funny. Also in the IPA studio is research fellow Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. And making a very welcome return is raconteur, scribbler and man about town, Christian Kerr. Thank you. Great to have you back, mate. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. We'll start off, uh, I have a, some skin in the game here. I, I woke up Monday morning to find that my uh, my superannuation portfolio had crashed along with uh, all the world's share markets because of the trade war fears. It was back by Tuesday, though. Chris Berg, what has been going on? <laughs> well, what hasn't been going on? So um, this week, the Group of Seven Summit occurred in France. The Group of Seven is um, uh, seven of the major developed countries, or at least seven of the major developed countries as that was understood in the 1970s. So that's France, Italy, Canada, the United States, Japan, Germany, and the United Kingdom all met together with a group of invitees, including our very own Scott Morrison. Unsurprisingly, um, the big issue on the table um, uh, there's there's two big issues on the table and one um, uh, big dominator of the conversation. The dominator was, of course, Donald Trump and Donald Trump's and the US administration's preferences around various things. But the two big issues as I see them was precisely that trade war um, that has been, again, there's an on and off again sense, tariffs going up, tariffs being delayed then going up again, um, uh, as well as a um, request from the Trump administration to bring Russia into the G7. They were kicked out in 2014 because of the annexation of Crimea. Um, I think it's worth talking, though, initially about about your stock portfolio, really, Scott, and 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 the trade war. Um, Thank you, Chris. That's what's important to me. <laughs> <there's> what, <laughs> keep it close to home. So um, there's been a few interesting things that have happened in the trade war in the last couple of weeks. I think there's been some increases to um, the trade war that he announced a few days ago, which would affect the remaining $300 billion of Chinese imports going into the United States. But there's also been a seeming admission by Donald Trump that the US consumers themselves are going to pay the brunt of these tariffs, which is, of course, what economic theory and evidence would suggest. Um, Andrew, how do you see... The, this the trade war played into the G7 summit and and played into uh, uh, America's role in um, these multilateral organisations. 
I think the other the other countries that are wary of Trump's trade war, so in particular the United Kingdom, France, Canada, were all very vocal about it. Um, Australia as well, I think, um, uh, are kind of focusing on just one part of it, which is the economic analysis. Um, but that's that's a limited perspective because the the trade war exists mostly as a strategic phenomenon. It's uh, about uh, it's it's about reasserting American primacy in the world. It's about uh, rising to the challenge of a uh, a totalitarian power that has global ambitions and that uh, through its perfidy has completely distorted the global economy. So. The, the economic aspect of it, I think sometimes it's too easy to focus on that and say, well, this is a bit of a departure from what uh, economic theory would tell us is going to raise prosperity around the world. Um, but of course, prosperity means nothing without uh, a country to be prosperous in. And so the, the, the Trumpian view of this is that it's actually a strategic endeavour to, to, to reassert the United States and to, and to get China to, to play by the rules, put a bit of pressure on them. Christian, what's your view? I'd, I'd absolutely have to agree with that. Um, Scott Morrison yesterday stated the complete obvious when he said Australia was collateral. Well, so are all those other nations you were talking about. Well, the Trumpian view of the world is just to cause this instability, just to try and wrongfoot your opponent, keep moving the ground under them. I think that's the, um, that's the art of the deal nowadays. It's just keeping them on their toes, guessing, being unpredictable, moving one direction, then pulling back, because this is completely a political game directed at China, and it's a political game directed at China at a time when China is actually under a lot of pressure, too. He's really ratcheting it up at the moment because you've got Hong Kong putting all the focus on what China actually is, and so why not sweat them? Because the United States does have legitimate trade complaints with China. All right. So I think this is both an economic and political disaster. Um, uh, I, I, I get the theory that there is a, um, a grand strategic plan. I don't think Donald Trump shares that grand strategic plan. And I think there's a lot of Trump-splaining going on because trade imbalances that have been his ongoing concern since the 1980s, and he is genuinely really passionate about not having a free trade system. He wants fair trade, not free trade. Um, uh, the Chinese government has been breaking rules around IP and technology transfers. I don't think Donald Trump personally cares very much about technology transfers and IP theft. That's not um, his worldview, or at least I don't think there's any reason to believe that his worldview, uh, that's his worldview. So if and if my analysis is correct, and the um, the only purpose of this is to fight a trade war and bring companies back to the United States from everywhere in the around the world, because of course he's been angry at other people's trade imbalances too, not just China's. Then this is this is this is disastrous. I mean, he's it looks from an outside perspective like he's deliberately tanking the global economy, or if he's not deliberately tanking the global economy, he's tanking the global economy through his own ignorance of how the global economy functions. Um, and then thereby undermining his chances in 2020, because what's going to get him reelected? It's the economy. It's not, does China look like it's on the back foot or not? It's not, how is Hong Kong going? It's, do the people in Wisconsin 
have jobs. Yeah, but maybe right. he thinks it's actually right. I mean, this mm. is don't we want politicians that say, um, okay, even though it would be easy for me to, to relent in the trade war and then it'll look great for me as I roll into my re-election, don't we actually want politicians who stand on principle? Now, <laughs> but he's not saying no, that. No, no, no. Whether, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. About, I don't know whether he's not saying that. I mean, I think it's. I think it's all there in but, its in the this uh, kind of typical Trump. I, Trump I think way. it's there in a Trump way too, and I think you actually made a mistake, Chris, when you talked about issues like IP, because that's a pretty deep issue. I think the Trump audience doesn't really care about IP. What you do is you bundle it up in is that bring the companies home and then you sort of say, so they can't steal our ideas. It's all about that sort of theory of American primacy and he's dressing up issues like IP in American primacy because that's what those people in Wisconsin want. Yeah, but I, th I think, um, uh, Andrew, you're overstating the degree to which Trump is driven by the geopolitical agenda. I, th I think it is genuine sort of mercantilist mindset. He really is worried about trade imbalances and, and any sort of deficit on trade is, is a sign that the other country is inherently evil and something must be done. The, the geopolitical landmarks have been pushed out there. So you know, there was the, the landmark speech by Mike Pence and, uh, and then you got guys like John Bolton, you know, of whom Trump famously said something like he's never seen a country that he didn't want to invade, or words to that effect. The scariest thing, I think, for the, for the John Boltons of the world was when, at G7, when Trump did say, oh, you know, the, the Chinese were on the phone, they want to make a deal, we still might make a deal. What if he does? What if he actually does? What if he, people like me who are worried about their... Uh, uh, their, super, uh, their pension balances, uh, the superannuation balances or, the, or the, the economy, the jobs, actually do push Trump into a position where he gets on the phone to Xi Jinping and says, OK, that's done. Well, it surely depends on what the deal is. But it cuts out the geopolitical element yeah. too. That's, that that's, that's being, my point. Is, but isn't, isn't it just being realistic? So yeah. You, yeah, can exactly. say, you can say, oh, well, Trump is a, a, a mercantilist and, and, and all of this. And he, and he probably is, but the the point is that isn't that just being realistic about what China uh, has done? Isn't but, isn't it just you know fighting on the battlefield as you as you know? But as it, it I'm not saying that's about trade. It's not it's not about uh, the fact that they're a, a communist state, a totalitarian state, all these other things, which which are true by the way. But that's not necessarily. What, I, I'm not convinced that that is truly what's motivating Trump. I, I, I want to call back to, and, and it's not even about the motive, and I'm really, uh, my big concern right now is the consequences of what's happening. And during the global financial crisis, we were really deeply concerned, correctly as it turns out, about the effect of policy uncertainty. Policy uncertainty holds back investment, holds back, um, uh, you, you can't make business decisions in a policy uncertain environment and that causes macroeconomic instability and that causes just downstream consequences that really pull the whole whole show down on itself. Uncertainty is the killer. And right now, and even if I it, let's say take take it entirely as you've argued, Andrew, that there's um, there's a global geostrategic thing here, and, and Trump is actually making these decisions entirely on 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 those grounds, and that's what the tweets are about, and that's what the yes no there's going to be tariffs is all about, just in the service of art of a deal. The downstream consequences of that will be massive, massive economic um, uh, consequences, and it may well be 
serious unemployment, it may well be a serious lowering of prosperity for very uncertain goals. Because if I believed that this was a very intelligent geostrategic plan, that might be one thing. But I just don't, I don't see that it is. I don't see how you get from not sure about whether there's going to be a tweet to now America's this in charge is, of the is, world This again. is the essential conflict. So that's, again, the reductive economic take. The, the point... It's one I specialise in. No, the, <laughs> well, and, and, and the, the point here is that some things are more important than money, mm -hmm. right? And that's the, the essential... Uh, the, the essential characteristic of Trump in this is not... Um, is that he's not a liberal, right? He's, he's not doing this because he wants to bring down a communist regime, as, as Scott said. He's not doing it because he wants to have uh, a stable, liberal, free trade order emerge from it. He's doing it because... He's hedging the way he sees it, and this is instinctive. I don't think anyone pretends that Trump sits down and plots this out, you know, night by night. It's instinctive. What he thinks he's doing, and probably quite reasonably, given the track record and the power of the Chinese Communist Party, he thinks he's hedging against an existential risk for his nation. And so he's prepared to impose a whole lot of costs on people. He's prepared to distort... Uh, the economy as it stands. I mean, of course, there's this question about whether what he's doing is is more uh, more of a distortion than what we've endured over the last 20 years, anyway. But what he is doing is hedging against a much greater risk, uh, and that is definitely the prism that, through which he's viewing it. And yet, at the same time, too, Trump likes appearing magnanimous. So you talk up the threat, you do everything you just said, and then suddenly it's the deal. It's done. That's why he loves just keeping the idea that, yes, we might be able to sit down, we might be able to broker things. And he did the Trump same loves presence. He did the same with Iran. I mean, I thought he, uh, Trump was going to have a bit of a tanty when Macron uh, introduced the Iranians mm -hmm. into the summit, uh, but it was all uh, hugs and kisses. It was quite remarkable. And, and now Macron's his best buddy. What was going well, on I there? I mean, then you're throwing into another fascinating element about Macron suddenly re-emerging. <laughs> You know, this is the Macron who, when he first appeared on the world stage, mm. fascinated us. And, I mean, it seems to be an eye in law that if anyone goes into the Lyceau Palace, they're going to absolutely disappoint you. No. Within <laughs> <a few laughs> but this is the you know, Mr. 20%, that, yeah. But suddenly, very clever, no communique, sit down with Trump before... All these little things. He's a fascinating It was slightly impressive, player. I must admit. Yeah, yeah, Trump, Trump sits marks. kind of on the borderline between alpha posturing and abusive husband. Like, <laughs> he, he dangles this, like, one day he's friendly, one day he's not. You don't know what his mood's going to be. You have to cater to him. It's always, if you look at, it's even like, and again, it's all instinctive. For whatever reason, Trump grew up this way and this is how he behaves. But if you look at the photos of, of things like him next to Justin Trudeau, Trump's leaning back, he's leaning away, he's in a strong posture, and then you've got Trudeau, legs crossed, leaning towards him. Trump routinely sets up photos in this way so mm. that it looks like people are coming to him. Now, mm. he might be uh, not exactly possessed of the wisdom of Solomon, he might be <laughs> a low-rent tribal chieftain, um, the proof will be in the pudding, but that's definitely how he conducts himself. He walks around as though he is... 
You know, no, there's the king of the there is the definitely the biggest yeah. tribe too. There, there is definitely an instinctive strategic view, although I just don't buy that he cares deeply about IP transfers and technology transfers. But there's definitely an instinctive no, no strategic. <laughs> no, of course not. But 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 that's not also why anybody cares about China either. Let's be realistic. That's not what these debates about free trade are. But um, even though there is a st instinctive strategic element to that that there are good guys and bad guys and there are there's america and um and 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 we can you know make deals and all that sort of thing um it's still going to be a massive catastrophe and a huge error so even if yes there's a grand plan what if that grand plan is a disaster yeah, selling, and that you, is selling really your country to ch communists is probably yeah. worse no, no, but, uh, <laughs> trade, trade wars are easy to start but very hard to finish very hard to get very out hard. of well very arguably fair. it never finishes very no, hard. It's not like this. Yeah, precisely. It's, it's always a constant back and forth. Yeah. There's no uh, stable equilibrium. Technology changes, the goods and services that are in demand change. Uh, Trade wars are played in a great state of Well, farmers. no, we did have a remarkable uh, period of uh, post Bretton Woods, post post World War Two. Uh, we we had like three three decades of, of economic growth underpinned by basically the Pax Americana, which was a free trade. Peace uh, was basically uh, we'll we'll take care of your defence and security so long as you open open your borders and reduce your tariffs, which everyone did. Uh, that worked for a long time. Then we stumbled along. We had the WTO. It was it was a not bad story there for a long time. Whereas <laughs> this is back to a, a bilateral story. This is this this is uh, you know Thunder Cycler uh, circa nineteen nineteen ten. If you're not yeah. careful, yeah. it or, is a, it is a bit of a concern. Or nineteen twenty. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, back in Australia. Uh, we are still dealing with the re repercussions of the Royal Commission uh, into child abuse in institutions. Uh, didn't get the title right there, but you, I think the you all know Royal what Commission I mean. The Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. No wonder I didn't get it quite right. Um, and now state governments are in, in various states are legislating in response to that. They are responding. So um, uh, the, obviously the Royal Commission made a bunch of recommendations, one of which was that um, uh, there should be mandatory reporting of um, disclosures or suspicions of sexual abuse with, quote, no exception for religious leaders and no exception made for the disclosures made under the seal of the confessional. So um, if you go to confession, if you're um, a, 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 a um, Catholic worshipper and you go to confession, then um, uh, that, you, that priest, if you disclose to them, will be required to um, disclose that. To, um, uh, to law enforcement. Now, Daniel Andrews is introducing a bill along these lines. The Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has also announced that they would do so as well. Um, the big question is for us, I think, is this a violation of religious freedom? It sounds to me, I mean, on the face of it, it's definitely a hard case given the overwhelming importance of um, protecting children versus the overwhelming importance of religious freedom andrew how do you navigate this the you're right it's it's a it's a hard case because if you want to make the religious freedom argument here what what you're essentially saying is that the state ought to recognize in some sense the special status of in particular uh catholic priests who hear confessions um and that's what uh the publicity on this issue has mostly been about um and so you know in there's one way of framing that as actually a concession from the state Right, rather than as a, a natural liberty. And in fact, from, a, from a, a point of view of natural rights, well, 
the Catholic Church has already said it simply will not break the seal. It, it, won't, it won't give up its sacraments um, that easily, um, whether or not the state punishes them one way or another. Um, I think that uh, there's a question about whether this law is, is purely symbolic in a way, particularly as it pertains to the Catholic Church, um, because given that the Church has that view, um, given that it won't cooperate, and given that confession is heard one-on-one, uh, -on -one, um, anonymously, um, I don't know how it could be the case that you could say, well, um, you know, Father Gonzalez heard this, uh, you know, he heard this confession and he didn't report it. Because he will say, well, I, can't, I can either confirm nor deny anything that was said in confession. Um, I simply don't know how the state could ever prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a certain thing was said absent... Um, well, even, even, if, even if the accused says, no, I, I confessed at that time, um, of course, and that would be a much lesser crime than the thing the, that he the just... Original, yeah, the so so I'm, not sure what the, I'm not sure what the function of this law is. Symbolically, though, I agree, it's, a, it's definitely a hard case. It's a bit of a red herring, I think, this sort of law. Um, I think it's unfortunate that it does appear to be targeting the, well, does target the Catholic Church because it reinforces that misinterpretation that this was all about the Catholic Church, which very clearly was not the case in the Royal Commission's findings. And something also, if you actually think back to the founding of the Royal Commission, Julia Gillard was actually applauded for some very unlikely sources for not targeting the Catholic Church, for making sure that people actually understood through the terms of references that this was actually a broader issue than restricted to one particular denomination. It plays into that sort of worst bit of Catholic superstition belief that still exists out there, and which as a Catholic I just sort of find remarkable when I stumble across it amongst educated people. Because, I mean, confession is shrouded in a whole degree of mystery. One of Alfred Hitchcock's lesser-known films is actually one on the entire theme, I Confess. Got Montgomery Clifton the lead. You couldn't get much more spectacular than that as a priest. And he's a priest who's about to be found guilty of murder, even though he's innocent, because he won't say what the guilty people have actually told him. So it's a great yeah, background I, for melodrama, I, I, all I, of this. I think you're quite right. It, it's not so much the law in itself, and, I'll, and I'd like to talk about the, the laws in to the extent that I've been able to sort of unpack them. It's uh, the disturbing thing is yeah, how it how it plays and and uh, into this notion of, of Catholicism. I'm not not Catholic, um, uh, but I've I've been struck by this too. I notice it. Um, that uh, how it's reported, even how the laws are promoted, um, it's all about breaking down a Catholic thing. Now, interestingly, but one of the things that happens in that is the extent to which there has ever been a protection, and it's always said, oh, well, these laws will remove the protections for the seal of the confession. This is wildly overstated. There are no common law protections in Australia for the seal of the confessional. And I, I have in front of me a paper... Uh, by Anthony Gray, professor at the School of Law at the University of Southern Queensland, for instance, who's, who's gone exhaustively through this. It, it's, there's no real common law tradition, either in Britain or in Australia, 
which gives any sort of sucker to uh, a Catholic priest who might be trying to trying to claim that privilege. You know, doctors are privileged, uh, lawyers are privileged, but not Catholic priests. So this is wildly overstated. And the only carve-outs that have ever been used in uh, some of the evidence acts of some of the states have only been when they're in the act of imposing a positive obligation on reporting. And this is actually part of the thing that disturbs me, which is we are now constantly extending the positive obligations on mandatory reporting, which hitherto have been uh, to agents of the state, like uh, teachers say, um, uh, social workers, to things they find out in the course of their business, and on the basis of a Royal Commission recommendation, they're now going to extend this to persons classed as, you know, ministers of religion. You know, unspecified, but we know who we're talking about, don't we? Because I'm not aware of confession being a thing in Buddhism or, <laughs> or Islam or anything else. Um, so we know who we're talking about. So suddenly, even though there's a separation between church and state, we're going to have legislation which says, well, we're going to treat you as if you are like an employee of the state. Like so many of these religious freedom things, I think there's a really basic problem. And to, to, to sound a bit like Andrew, this is when the secular state meets a, a religious body um, and the secular state doesn't understand. And the thing that the secular state and the people who are drafting these ideas don't understand is that the priests actually believe in the seal of the confession. They're actually religious. So the, the, the doctrine is that, um, in fact, I'll quote from the uh, Catholic Church responded to a parliamentary inquiry in Victoria on its own canon. The confession is understood as being made to God. The priest to whom the confession is made is representing the person of Christ. Consequently, admissions made to God through the priest are not the priests to reveal. The priests believe that. And it's very easy for um, a secular public debate or a secular public discourse to sort of forget that, uh, that when we debate these religious freedom issues, there's really heartfelt belief that they think is more important than obeying a, a, a direction from a yeah, royal commission. There's a tremendous commission. religious illiteracy in, 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 in the mm. discussion around this. And one of the things I just wanted to pick up on, uh, on, what, on what Christian was saying was that the... There's, there's a sense in which because of this illiteracy um, and because of sort of rising secularism and things that, that the Catholic Church operates in popular culture almost as a kind of trope, right? That when you have, <laughs> when you have a, a kind of a, a movie about, it's a style. about witches or something <laughs> yeah. like that, then you get this, the, a priest appears and a, the priest speaks kind of for the good side of mystical powers yeah, that we yeah. don't understand. It's the exorcist, that's really... Yeah, kind of like from the exorcist on, exactly. And it's... And, um, the, the Harvard law professor, one of my favourites, Adrian Vermeule, um, integralist in chief, uh, he, he <laughs> I reckons... I wish I knew what that meant. He yeah. reckons that... <laughs> it sounds he, very good. He, he, reckons, <laughs> he reckons that this, this, this Catholicism as trope, it comes from a, a very a deep fear latent in our culture that perhaps its teachings are true. So, <laughs> I think that about everybody's response to my opinions as well. Uh, and I think you just opposed because you, I, I you're, you're I do, scared. I'm right. I do think that this kind of this kind of floats around that the, the Catholic Church is some kind of uh, embodiment of, of of superstition of mysticism. It's completely impenetrable to to non-Catholics, and that this makes it somehow threatening. And then, of course, the Church will involve itself in public debates like this. Um, because of course it, it must, but it also it just sort of feeds into this, you know. Well, of course they would say that 
kind of thing. And from that, of course, I would say that I think we just have to look at the practical elements. Now, as far as I'm aware, a priest is already obliged if he hears in confession in Victoria an admission of um, sexual abuse, um, even without um, even without any specific legislation, he's obliged to report that. I think that comes under the Crimes Act, well, so yes. far as I've been yeah. able to we, determine. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone is. Everyone. Exactly. Yes. But let's just look at the institution of confession. A good Catholic that I am, I think I last went to confession in 1980. My Jesuit education... Your immortal soul is was, under um, considerable threat well, then, well, I would well, suggest. My Jesuit education in the early 80s seemed to be much the same as the Clash albums I listened to as it seemed to be obsessed with Nicaragua and El Salvador. <laughs> and so, you know, they're, they're about one of the same, the Jesuits and the Clash. But seriously, I don't think anybody other than a very small handful, well, we know that virtually no Catholics other than a very small handful actually attend Mass. It's only, only a fraction of that handful that um, go along to confession. And then there are all these things that the Catholic Church states, and quite rightly, in that any priest, or virtually every priest, who receives an admission of any crime will withhold absolution and say, you go and report this crime, and then I can absolve you. Part of you. your repentance is actually it's submission. Part of the repentance to is the... repentance. Yeah, look, yeah. And yeah. this is the whole thing, that if you are concerned enough to go along to confession to admit these crimes, then surely you actually want to have the absolution, and that absolution will be withheld. And I, this, yeah, is why I just, but... this is why I keep on coming back to this, is to, to such a large extent a red herring and just playing off not the superstition, not just that ignorance, the illiteracy, but a whole willful ignorance that I think has been created by, you know, dare I say the word cultural Marxists, but this whole, yeah. this whole but this is, this sectarianism is under the guise of political correctness and a whole lot of other things that have been thrown up at the Catholic Church in the most preposterous way. But this and is by people who should know better and who people can now make a career out of politically correct secularism. But I think given the state of the law, this is where um, those who would want to fight back on behalf of the church would actually be falling falling for the trap if they if, if they die on yeah. this hill. Because no, on this once hill. you actually go through the law, um, its consequences are incredibly minor. The symbolism is powerful because it is... Mm. Uh, the, the public campaign is a sectarian um, campaign, uh, but the law itself, I think, is m pretty much inconsequential. And, and of course, the Royal Commission did find that there were um, child, uh, priests uh, who were later found guilty of child abuse who had gone to confession and had confessed. Yeah. I, I think it's stronger than that. So but how long ago? I mean, that's the other thing too. Well, yeah. it, you only and changed I mean, the law once. And I mean, also, I think just no, every... Well, not, not all that long ago. I mean, yeah, we're, we're not, we're not talking like... Well, we are talking last century, but, you know... Long, long enough ago. And I think you've no, got... No, 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 we're talking 80s, you've, 90s. You've got, I think you've just got to do with the mindset that for a lot of these people as a devout Catholic, let alone members of the priesthood, whatever, some of these things were almost incomprehensible. You know, they are literally, not from any deliberate way, just from an absolute naivety. And I think at the same time, too, Catholics realise that that naivety and just sheer, I am confronted with something that I find so overwhelming, I don't know what to do, 
I think they realised that that happened and that was one of the causes why this tragedy happened. And I think at the same time too, I think no, no Catholic is going to defend anything, anything now that lets Indeed. pedophilia, child abuse happen. I think the whole idea is that the church really needs this massive open lane up and cleansing. So again, I think this is, a, again, goes back to the red herring. I'll just make one final point, which is that I think there's, in, in society we're evolving, or in public debate, we're evolving two very different ideas of what religious freedom is. And there's the sort of secular version, which is that religious freedom means that we're not going to prevent you from going to church on Sundays. So you're welcome to have whatever odd view about um, the, the, the religious order that you like. And you, you can go to church on Sundays and you can worship and, and you can sing songs and then you, then you go home and you get on with your secular life. But there's a, the deeper religious freedom is that those religious beliefs you carry with you outside the church. And those religious beliefs aren't just things that you like an interesting metaphysics that you have in the back of your head, but they actually have meaning and they actually um, uh, require you to do certain things. They actually, it, it's a worldview and it's a requirement, um, a moral code that involves things like the seal of the confessional because the seal of the confessional isn't just a ritual, it's a, a um, belief about um, the relationship between person, church and God. So what do we do? So this has... What's what a this, great question. What's this segue coming up? Um, uh, when, <laughs> when we have an act of parliament that specifies that uh, ministers of any religion must do certain things, what do you do with the thousands upon thousands of Australians who, when responding to the sentence, uh, to the, the census, said that they were Jedi Knights and were followers of the Jedi religion? And the connection there being that... No, no, we're with you so far. Yeah. No, the, okay. that, we got it. You want that, to talk about Star Wars. Yeah, we, are, no, we do want to talk it. about Star Wars. The ninth <laughs> movie in the Skywalker. What's now called look, I feel like we should give you Wait, an applause, this, or what are you looking for? This, uh, is, a, this, is, a, this is a segue. I've only just caught You're up. With us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Is I everyone following? I think you do have to register, though, if you cross over the dark side. To the dark side. It should be a mandatory requirement. Yes, then you should. Definitely subject to reporting obligations. Um, because uh, whilst because <laughs> uh, Disney has gone crazy this week, it's announced that not only will it finish what it's now calling the Skywalker cycle, it'll deliver the ninth movie uh, in the series, which finished way back with Star Wars uh, in 1977. Uh, it will do a plethora of other movies and also the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is now a Disney property, of course, is also going to produce many, many more movies. It's, it's like there's something happening in the world of mass entertainment like we've never seen before. And, and to add to that, so, so Disney uh, has, launched, uh, has announced all this sequence of films and, of course, we've been seeing the Star Wars movies since they, were, they purchased the IP rights from um, George Lucas. But in November, they're launching their own streaming video on demand service with, of course, all of these as well as TV series around Star Wars as well. They're withdrawing their IP from the other streaming services. So it's easy to, when we when we discuss these movies, we often, in, in the culture picks, we often um, talk about sequelitis or isn't it sad that there are new new ideas and why isn't it the 1970s when there was easy rider made and all that sort of stuff and and we've got this vision of, but but it's much more than that because at the same time not just the structure of entertainment and the structure of these what we now call properties is evolving, but the way we consume them is evolving. Um, there are radical changes, radical simultaneous changes around globalization, which is the, the rise of the Chinese audience 
for movies like Star Wars and the Marvel comics, um, the changes in you know, TV shows acting like movies, movies acting like TV shows. It's, they're just some massive, huge changes. And Disney is the leading instance of that. But I think it reflects a deeper economic shift in the entertainment industry. I mean, if you went back 150 years, all the world's biggest corporations... Uh, their asset base would have been roughly equivalent to their shareholder value. You know, you, you, they owned things like railway lines and factories and chemical plants and, and oil refineries and all these sorts of things. And now what you see is the global heights of, of the Western world economy, at least, uh, uh, companies like Netflix and, and Google and, and Disney that, that don't own physical assets and these, these, these cultural artefacts and, and own their their customer bases and create these universes and they have such power. I mean, Disney famously has been able to get Congress to extend the copyright on um, on Mickey Mouse. Yeah, on the thing it owns. On the thing which it is, owns. Which is not, mm. which is capital but not, you know, buildings it used or to be, factories. Yeah, or when what. they started Mickey Mouse, it was like, oh, 75 years of copyright. Oh, heck, that'll be plenty. And then, but they've been around for so long that they had to, uh, Congress kindly agreed to extend that forever. Christian, what would you say the cultural consequences of this are? The cultural consequences, I think, of this, as distinct from what you were talking about, the economic consequences and the consumption context... It's the only that, thing I think about, and even, Andrew's already and accused even, me of that. Today, even, so. that even that <laughs> political aspect um, that you mentioned with the pitch to China, yep. uh, which I am finding really fascinating in some of the blockbusters um, is actually provoking though, a backlash of its own. I mean, you just threw an easy rider there. <laughs> and, you know, Star Wars is seen, well, you know, the, the, the classic book, um, you know, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, looking at that magnificent period of Hollywood that produced some really intelligent entertainment, the Chinatown to the world, the Godfather, things like that, that Star Wars is really seen to have killed off. What has fascinated me that in the face of all of this, we have had so many people, and I'm one of them amongst them, who trooped off so we could see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 35mm. And I mean, I think there's a generation that actually has missed that entire experience because they've grown up in the age of the multiplex. I mean, I was lucky enough to sneak in and see Apocalypse Now underage <laughs> in the sort of, you know, the full glory that it was actually meant to be seen in. Not quite the full glory, given that they've extended it over and over and over, and over yeah. again. Well, we'll, yes, we'll get about the remixes. And, but um, I think it's really funny from the cultural point of view because now we're sort of seeing 35mm almost as a cultural artefact in the way we're seeing the rebirth of vinyl. Mm. And I think it's got to be compared to that. So you're going to have the sort of people who are going to be obsessed over the CGI spectaculars, and there are other people who just say, you know, this just looks like a video game. It's not like the way a picture should be, a meaningful entertainment should be, and they're the ones who are going to go off and see some of the classics again, down on 35mm. And I think as long as people like Carantino keep producing their sort of films... The, on, on these formats, there's going to be this entire counter-movement against Disney. Yeah. Now that we've seen the 
uh, superhero genre, Star Wars, all this fantasy stuff, get completely thinned out, completely denuded of its American content um, to to pander to to global audiences or cater to them, if you like. The uh, it is to be hoped, I think, that we might see American cinema uh, come out of its post 9/11 regression. The what happened, I think, in, after after 9/11 was uh, basically America regressed in the same way that uh, a child might start wetting the bed again. Marvel, <laughs> Marvel comics, Mar- Marvel comics, Mar- Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is actually the cultural equivalent of bedwetting. Um, it was basically like, or thumb sucking. It was basically America wanting to see the world in a really simplistic, good guys, bad guys way, divorced from reality, which separates it from the older Western genre, which was still rooted in their own history. Completely, all that particularity, completely gone. Very simple story, very childlike. From, I don't think that's right. From that position of weakness. Finish your point. And from that position of weakness, <laughs> the, the culture has now been turned around on them. It's now, these stories are now vehicles for the propagation of often very dangerous left-wing ideas. Um, I don't think that we're prepared for the for a world in which America has lost its soft power, its ability to project its its ideas. But... To the extent that that's true, that it has lost that power, there is a silver lining, and that is that the projection of its childish fantasies and nightmares may well come to an end, hopefully. In that sense, is the sort of figures like Captain America, is that a... uh, In your argument, is is he a sort of ironic or a sort of um, uh, Captain America under stress? I mean, I just see that they do have these disputes. Well, Captain in the America went globalist in these movies, but <laughs> the, but the, <laughs> the important thing is the important thing is not that. I mean, of course, there's a longer history of these characters, yeah. but they have jumped their bounds. They've broken the banks, and they became the dominant part of the stories that Americans tell themselves. And that, I think was a shift and we saw a, a move away from original adult entertainment. I mean, you don't even get you don't even get something as good as like mid 90s actioners like Speed. Like the, the Holly, fugitive. Like the Holly, fugitive. yeah, Hollywood the, has not made a movie that good in a long time and it's because I think that there was a that first there was a, an audience for this kind of of regression and then uh, this globalization has basically been able to turn that around and now use that in a way uh, of negating american soft power uh, I, I, I think uh, you are <laughs> understating a little bit uh, so to, to chris's point so understating yeah, i don't think i've ever done that once. Uh, <laughs> i mean av- 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 avengers civil war pl- share, you know finally share your views out uh, avengers civil war <laughs> played out the the arguments between captain america and an iron man about the the role of the of the state and um uh, to what extent they should be enrolled in government programs as opposed to just uh, do you know more of an anarchist line on doing their own thing so you know and you go right back to say star wars so i think there is a displacement effect i mean it's displacing the easy riders the raging bulls the speeds um but in terms of the story arcs themselves i mean these these movies have always been built on myths and you know george lucas famously ransacked um, all the all the studies of um, uh, myths from indigenous cultures, you know, sort of the the Jungian archetypes of the the hero's journey and these sorts of things. So um, this is just the latest manifestation in in culture, 
and it's the it's, I think it's more disturbing the, that the, that Disney owns it. It's not it's not the paucity of the themes. I think it's more disturbing that it's been essentially corporate. Our collective unconscious has been corporatized. Yeah. Well, uh, it's but it's not just the corporatization of the collective unconsciousness. It is that when Star Wars came out, you had Lucas, who was very firmly linked in with these sort of wannabe auteurs. Um, Spielberg too, actually. Yep. And yet they draw their inspiration from the old Saturday afternoon serials. And it's as if the Saturday afternoon serials that they were paying homage to suddenly became the lead picture. And that's what we're seeing. They're only only B pictures. Only B pictures. The B pictures are now the big ones. But at the same time, there are all these splendid independent films coming out all the time. It's just that the corporations have decided that this is where the money is. And seriously, yeah, again, the, the quality of special effects and things like this, it's so undemanding. So, I mean, you sit down and look at the love of the special effects in 2001 and then just look at the CGI mess of something like an Aquaman. We basically I mean, live in the what? uncanny valley now. What? <laughs> it is just, it is preposterous <laughs> tripe. And yet this is this is being elevated to the great works of cinema and, and or I, I the main to, works I'll, of I'll, cinema. I want to add to the Christian's point. The B-movies have won. The, the, the B-movies may have won, but also there's just a massive amount more of this content than ever before. And I've got a chart in front of me, the number of films released in US cinemas between 1980 and 2016. And roughly there were 100 films released in US cinemas in 1980. And in 2016, there were more than 700. Now, 2016 is before, uh, 2016 is before the streaming era as well and before um, Netflix massive investment and now Amazon and in the future Google and presumably Disney will be pouring money into new content as well. So there's just a lot more of it too. And in a way, these dominant cultural icons like the Marvel, which I, 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 I agree with you, I think are, are, are really low quality entertainment, but they are the last gasp of the sort of water cooler entertainment that everybody goes to see everybody stands and talks about to their colleagues because in fact we're just watching a lot more niche and different things i think that's that's one of the huge huge changes so we can complain about disney or we can be concerned about the dominance of a new studio system but that new studio system it, it lives in a world or operates in a world in which there's just a hell of a lot more knowledge. And, and for that stuff. reason, the lowest common denominator has become lower. No, <laughs> yeah, see, I challenge that too. I mean, uh, Christian <laughs> talked about auteurs. Um, so Spielberg made Jewel, great independent movie, um, uh, but then he makes, you know, he goes and makes the big cinema blockbusters. Um, someone like uh, Take Away Titi, uh, the uh, New Zealand born filmmaker, makes Hunt for the Wilder People. Brilliant independent film, and then uh, makes the only good Marvel movie, and then makes the only good Marvel, and then makes <laughs> Thor three. Um, so just as the, the the Hollywood system co-opted the the Spielbergs and the Lucases and so well, on, what they all yeah, they're, they're still doing it. Nothing's changed. I, it may just be the volume that's, that's the, actually they all want to be they all want to be Christopher Nolan, but the more likely outcome is that you yeah. become uh, like Ryan jo- uh, Ryan Johnson or whatever, like. You go from you go from who uh, did the last Jedi? Yeah, yeah, so who mm. went from uh, went from making really interesting uh, independent movies like Brick, which is like a high school film noir, uh, 
he shot one of the most famous episodes of Breaking Bad, which is called Fly. Um, and then you end up with him making absolutely terrible Star Wars movies and his career's over. Um, David Bowie's son, whose name I can't quite remember, his name his surname is Jones. Um, he made a number of, he made a very interesting movie uh, called Moon. Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones. And now he makes absolute garbage. <laughs> you're not, not going to be, most people aren't going to be Christopher Nolan, who's, you know, edgy opinion, somewhat overrated anyway, but um, not everyone... I, I think Scott's right that if you're a director, what you say is one for me, one for the studio, one, and that's kind of been the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the way it's been done. Um, but often these movies are so bad, they have so many... They go through so many script rights, the, the jokes are so punched up and so polished that you can't actually do anything good with the form and it just wrecks your career. And Scott, I think, made a very important point about Vardian. I mean... I find it hard to distinguish between these films. That's what I need my children for. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yes, they, they coach us through all of these things. Um, we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and um, so I go to the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies with, with my kids from time to time. Usually they're seeing it for the second time because the first time they see it with their mates uh, and then they'll condescend to go see it with their father. Um, and so in return I took um, our 14-year-old to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and of course, is that even legal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's MA fifteen plus, and um, uh, oh yeah, what's, what is she? Oh, well, anyway, she's fifteen ish. Um, it's all we believe it's, in civil disobedience yeah, here. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, that's podcast. right. And uh, this, this, given what she downloads um, uh, from from all those uh, BitTorrent sites or whatever they are, uh, the violence in a Tarantino movie is nothing that caused her any concerns whatsoever. Um, uh, but uh, it was, I think, as Christian alluded to, a tremendous uh, movie. I think um, one of the great rev- one of the reviews I read said um, it has an elegiac tone, like a John Ford movie, mm. and it reminded me that that's actually where I learnt the word elegiac when I was reading about John John Ford's The Searchers. <laughs> um, this from uh, the idea of elegy, a poem, you know, looking back to the past with a sort of a nostalgic and slightly painful air about, you know, things which are no more. And that's certainly what Tarantino is doing here. It is like, it does have that Western feel to it because I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, his lead character played by Leonardo DiCaprio is Mm. um, in westerns for the most part Um, just as John Ford looked back to the to the passing of a set of ideals of the west which were sort of masculine white um, uh, uh, full of independent uh, heroes perhaps an anti-hero Tarantino's doing that as well and he's looking at that that end of the Hollywood system just when you know hippies were coming along vietnam was coming along these things are sort of the hippies are front and center because we have the the manson acolytes vietnam's alluded to there's that sense of the the turn and uh tarantino was criticized by a lot of people who said things like oh there are no good women characters in this it's a very masculine movie it's a very straight up old-fashioned values movie i think they're absolutely right and tarantino knew exactly what he was doing (laughs) i mean it's Tarantino is one of his biggest influences is, of course, Westerns. So he's a Mm. huge Sergio Leone fan. Um, The opening of Inglorious Bastards is basically um, just an homage to to Leone. Um, Of course, the title of this movie is a reference. Mm. Yep. uh, So Once Upon a Time in the West. So 
I think I think that's really interesting because the the way Tarantino works is he's the he's by far the the most successful, the most interesting of the kind of postmodern filmmakers who put a lot of influences into a blender and try and use it in an original way. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, I, I like I like watching Tarantino movies, but then I always get this feeling that perhaps they're always the same movie because of that postmodernism. That in the end, his stories are stories about stories, and I, I think that you could make a grand philosophical statement that postmodernism postmodernism is always a story about stories. Uh, I won't bore no, you with but that. That's but by definition. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's what it's meant to be. Yeah, but uh, but it can only be the same story. So it's a story about stories. Oh, it's sort of a Joseph Campbell, there's only 11 stories and we'll just no, keep no, no, telling but, them but, over but and over. No, no, but postmodernism is even more reductive than that, which is we live in narrative. You know, we live in a world of narrative. <laughs> I have one point. And it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have one point. I'm going to bore you with it over and over and over and then, and then At actually, least Tarantino kills some people along the way. <laughs> I mean, this has been the one where... Self, and then self-consciously there are, there are, there are references. I'm like... I knew about the Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe. I did not know that there was a Tarantino universe until recently. And um, it's mainly tied together with Captain Crunch, is it? Or no, no, no. There's um, uh, apparently uh, Vincent Vega had a brother that was in Reservoir Dogs, which I'd never oh, yeah. picked up before. And and there's this uh, in oh, rolling over the credits at the end um, is uh, Leo DiCaprio's character doing a um, a plug for Red Apple cigarettes, which is this made up brand mm. that. Um, uh, Tarantino created so that he wouldn't actually be promoting uh, a real cigarette brand in any of his movies, and they're smoking. They of course are smoking red apples, for instance, in uh, the Hateful Eight and Pulp Fiction, I think. And, and, and Pulp Fiction. So, uh, so suddenly we're in this universe. So it's stories about stories, and 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 so the audience, it's that winking nod to, hey, look, I made up this cigarette type. But that said, uh, I do recommend it. Uh, I think it's not his best script. I think it's his best effort as a director. If anything's ever going to land him a best director gong, it's actually this one. The, 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 the shots, the placement, what he gets out of his actors. Brad Pitt is just magnificent <laughs> and, and so is, is DiCaprio. So mm -hmm. that's my culture pick for the week, gentlemen. Christian, yours is postmodern as well. Mine's postmodern. Um I just spent the weekend binge-watching all three seasons of Stranger Things with a three-year-old, not a three-year-old, with an 11-year-old. They grow up so um, fast. They grow up so <laughs> fast, yes. By the way, I have a 10-year-old who wants to go and see Tarantino. Um, I'm not so much afraid about the reference, about the violence, just that they won't understand the cultural references that I have to explain to him. Um, just boring for you. <laughs> well, what really sort of got me out of Stranger Things, having sort of watched it bits and pieces, is that... Um, I'm a massive X-Files fan, and everyone was saying, well, look, it's the X-Files for kids. And so you binge watch, it's not just the X-Files for kids, it's um, it's Twin Peaks for kids as well. Okay. Or even, I think it's Blue Velvet for kids. Oh, God. <laughs> Dave, Dave, David Lynch. <laughs> yes, I good, good reference. I, I agree with this. I a lot of David Lynch through there. There's very, yeah. very deep weirdness. So that's wonderful for me. And I quibble about the 80s music because that demographic in the US would not have been listening to that in 1983. <laughs> it was only in Britain. <laughs> so, you know, but it's a whole lot of nostalgia for me. It's a whole lot of references for me. It's this wonderful, you know, packaging up of something, which I loved. But it's a, what does my, um, what does my 11-year-old get out of this? So she's got something of her own, but it's, you know, 
It's like the other people's memories given to the replicants. It's <laughs> funny. That's what I was sort of left feeling <laughs> with. It's sort of, this is just my generation's material, cutesied up, and then, you know, X Files, Twin Peaks, and it, and Blue Velvet. Yeah. Yeah, it's but, but it does, it does, it does mean, to the eighties. It does to the eighties what Blue Velvet did for yeah. the suburbs, right? So the the role that the eighties plays in this is eighties. To start this point, I mean, eighties nostalgia will never die, right? Because the eighties was the last time that the world was good before <laughs> um, before the internet ruined everything. Tell the that last to the people behind the eyes. The, the last time, the, well, the last time it was good for us. But the yeah. um, but the the. The point of this show, I think, the way it uses the 80s, and it's interesting you mentioned Blue Velvet because I, I thought the same thing, the same movie. And it, the, the point is to make the 80s itself seem more sinister than it was. That's, that's what I think. It's a deconstruction <laughs> of the 80s itself. Well, I mean, the 80s were sinister. I mean, we, you know, we wouldn't have done it, but, um, you know, well, the, the, the kids who are out, um, you know, the same kids who are out over uh, climate change, most of them would have been out with the same teachers, but the same teachers actually genuinely, um, you know, <laughs> protesting against Pine Gap and, uh-huh. you know, Ronald Reagan's going to blow us all up. We begin bombing in five minutes. It was really just, I thought, okay, there's just, there's not a genuine cultural base, though, for, for my child in this. It's, it's just an assemblage of other things. And I, I, I just sort of felt them slightly empty. Um, something slightly missing, and why should you know? They're all the knowing jokes for the parents dropped into, say, um, um, minions and things like that, and done very well. But they've got a whole lovely little fantasy for the kids in there as well. <laughs> this struck to me as being a fantasy for the parents. An- another one like that is Ready Player One, which is the Steven Spielberg movie, which is nothing but cultural. Which references. is, and also. Yeah. I think the greatest stinking pile I've ever had. <laughs> so I, um, my cultural pick uh, this week is also based on independent movies that are incredibly high quality. I went, um, in fact, it was two weeks ago, but I wanted to talk about China last week. It, um, I went to the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra playing with Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. They were performing a selection of the Nick Cave and Warren Ellis soundtracks. Soundtracks, of course, from the movies like the Australian one, um, The Proposition, uh, Hill or High Water, Wild River, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, um, all of which are basically westerns or, mm. or variations on the western form. The Road was another one, again, sort of variation on the western. Um, it was an amazing thing, and as regular listeners know, I am obsessed with movie soundtracks because I listen to them as I write all the things I write. Um, uh, but it was also great fun to see um, a rock star, two rock stars, standing in front of a very staid Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, p- dancing about and moving around on stage and pointing at the, you know, the, 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 the string instruments and sort of, yeah, go do that now. But of course, they can't do anything because they have to stick to the, <laughs> the score. <laughs> they have to stick to the score very rigidly, which is which is their job and that's not Nick Cave and Warren Ellison's job. But it was a magnificent and incredibly affecting and powerful form performance from um, some combination of uh, very classically aware and very avant-garde soundtrack music that works Brilliantly in the films and brilliantly in um, it, it turns out in a concert hall. Yeah, so I, I look forward to the to the soundtrack. I would have loved to have obviously seen Nick Cave live with a band, um, 
and the obviously the <laughs> uh, those, those who follow the MSO's regular season, you know, can be appalled that they have to stoop to do things like this to make a bit of cash on the side. But no, and that's and that's the interesting one. So it's like so. I, I agree, and there's the Harry Potter ones and where they show mm. the whole Harry Potter movie. And you can see, like, oh, I mean, they're trying to figure out ways to make money in this era, and I can understand that. But this was a genuine artistic contribution. Mm. Well, I, and what I was going to say is uh, one of my favourite albums still, which I must admit to, is Elton John Live with the MSO. <laughs> no, no, Mark Stein has noticed this too. That has uh, that some of the best renditions by Elton John of his songs were in that concert. Yeah. Uh, the MSO was terrific and it was right at the time when um, he's like finally admitting that maybe being married to a woman is not for him and um, and a lot of that had happened in Melbourne and uh, he was very emotional and uh, so good on the MSO for reaching out and doing these things. Great culture pick there. Well, here's an extremely intricate segue to rival the one we had before. So Chris mentioned there that one of the movies with the soundtrack was uh, The Assassination of Jesse James. The director of that was Andrew Dominic. He is also one of the directors of this season on Mindhunter. Hey. Well done. Yeah, no, nice well one. Yeah, yeah. Mindhunter yeah, season yeah. two on Netflix. Now, I won't go on at too much length because I know uh, some of the, the panel have not seen it yet and they are fans of no the show. No spoilers. Um, what I will say Series about this one show, was so, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, Mindhunter is a show about, essentially it's about the, the invention of profiling of serial killers. It's about the guys at the FBI who were tasked with trying to understand uh, why people are become serial killers so that, you know, hopefully law enforcement can kind of anticipate their next move and stop people from getting killed. Um, very noble aim. The show itself is actually uh, a very surprise... It was a very surprising critique of criminology. It's not a celebration of this method at all. And season two really brings this out in an interesting way that repeatedly the, the main character who's this... There's a, a, speaking of tropes, and I used that word earlier, that... Um, there's this trope of uh, the genius profiler. You'd see it in like you know Red Dragon and, and that, those mo- those kinds of movies. Um, but this kind of repeatedly challenges him. Is this just confirmation bias? Are you more interested in your model or are you more interested in catching the bad guys? And this series is is really good. And I think for anyone who for, has for all the characters too. So because there are three of them. There's yeah. There's sort of the genius. There's the weathered old. Um, uh, a detective and there's and there's a professor or, or an yeah, academic and, and, and they're all challenged on those grounds. Yeah, and and so if you're, I think if if you have any individualist sympathies at all, you'll really like this season because it comes, it, it challenges this idea that you can aggregate statistics and produce a model and then use that to deduce things about particular people to the point where it even has a judge deny. This isn't a spoiler, but a judge denies a warrant in it and he says, I can't issue a warrant for a type of person. <laughs> and it's just, there's lines like that, there's, there's a serial killer in it who tells the profiler, the problem with your model is that it's based on the killers who got caught. Mm. And Nassim Taleb could not Ooh. have written that any better. So <laughs> I r- highly recommend this show. It, it's not as well written, I think, as the first season. It doesn't hang together as well. But thematically, it really brings out what I think is its richest idea. Yeah, I mean, heaven forbid that we should challenge models. <laughs> anyone, anyone interested in climate? Stay away change? from my models. <laughs> <laughs> Economics. Their models are bad. No, their models <laughs> are bad. I have a good models. Actually, it, uh, so, some real. terrific culture picks uh, today, I think, and some great discussions. You have been listening to Looking Forward, in which the views of the panelists do not necessarily reflect the views of the Institute of Public Affairs. To access our research 
or to join or donate, please go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Chris Berg. Thanks so much. Christian Kerr. Thank you. And Andrew Bushnell. Thank you, Scott. And, of course, our producer, Josh Stranger. Have we... Uh, who inspired Stranger Things? No, maybe not. Thank you, Josh. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.